As we prepare our hearts and minds uh, to hear what God is saying to us, let us go to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that as the scripture is read and proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you would say to us this day. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord found in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, the seventh chapter, starting with verse five. Paul writes, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which leads us captive so that we are slaves, not under the written code, but now slaves in the new life of the spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, you feel new yet? Do you feel new? I mean, we've been doing this sermon series for a whole week now. New life in Christ. Behold, I make all things new. Do you feel new? Well, some of us, you know, when we say we're going to try a new thing, I mean, we get all excited about it, right? We, we're, we're going to start this diet and, or we're going to start to exercise. And, and we, we get all pumped up about it. We may even think, you know, I hear that being a vegetarian is pretty healthy. And we say, we're just going to be vegetarians. And then as we're driving by the steakhouse, we, we hear those, we smell those ribeyes cooking. And what do we turn right into the parking lot, right? I mean, it's so hard to keep up doing a new thing. And in the spiritual life, it's the same way. You know, we, we say we're going to pick up studying the Bible or, or we're going to start fasting. You know, those two-hour fasts that we Methodists practice, it's kind of hard to do, right? And, and, and so we, we try this and, and we fail. I mean, we can't even fast for, for two hours. And, and we say we want to be new, but we fail at it. Or how about this? We start this new stuff. We get on that diet. We do the exercise program and we start succeeding at it. I mean, we feel like we, we're, we're doing so well on these things. Or we, we take up this habit of fasting once a week for a whole day. Can you imagine that? And yet, it feels so much like a burden. There's nothing new to it at all when we... We have succeeded and, and, well, you know, I'm getting up and reading my Bible early. Or I am uh, taking time to pray, it, but it seems so empty and so hollow. Felt that way? That's what Paul's getting at in this section of this powerful letter that the apostle is writing to the people in Rome. In this chapter, he's talking about how successful he has been at keeping the law. You know, there's lots of debate what chapter 7 means, but Paul very clearly says in Philippians 3 that I have kept the law. I've kept it better than anybody. But there's a problem here. There's a problem here. I don't feel so new. For Paul kept the letter of the law, as he says, as a Pharisee, but he did not feel like he was a new creation in Christ. See, what the problem that Paul is hinting at is twofold. 
first of all, if we try to keep something to uh, be obedient, we are constantly scrutinizing ourselves if I have done enough. And we realize no matter how well we keep this law, well, we're always going to fail at it. That's kind of the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that you can keep everything perfectly, but still within your heart, you're failing. And as we try over and over and over and over again to, to do a new thing, we realize, well, I'm not doing enough. It's kind of like what this preacher is saying about her bishop. He used to go around saying, you know, I'm happy that I'm humble. And then he said, you know what, I'm, I'm not supposed to be happy about being humble. So I'm sad about being glad about being humble. And then he said this, he said, you know, I'm glad that I'm sad about being glad that I'm being humble. And then it went on, he said, then I'm sad about being glad about being sad about being humble. It never ended. That's the way it can be for us sometimes when we try to keep all sorts of rules, regulations, we try to do all sorts of spiritual things that we realize it can never be enough. We're going to fail in some form on some fashion. Martin Luther discovered this. Martin Luther, before the time of the Reformation, there in that Augustinian monastery, was so concerned about all the things that he was doing wrong or thinking wrong or saying wrong that every time he did some small little thing wrong or thought something that he didn't think was in line with God's will for him, he ran to his confessor. He did this so often that his priest would run from him. Can you imagine that? Every time your preacher, you got near your preacher, he turned around and ran from you because he was tired of you confessing to him. That's what was happening to Martin Luther. He realized he could never do enough. He was always going to miss the mark. And even though Paul had gotten the letter of the law right, he failed within his inner man. But there's another problem that Paul points out in chapter 7. Is that... You know, if we are doing these things to avoid some sort of punishment, then as he calls us, this is a fleshly reason to do that. This is a selfish reason to do that. We are trying to be pleasing to God to avoid being punished. Or put it in the terms of a child He or she doesn't do the things that he knows he shouldn't do because he's afraid of getting a whipping. And ultimately, that's a selfish reason. That's why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees. He said to them, Woe to you Pharisees! You tithe every mint and every rue, yet you do not follow the way of justice and of love. These are the things you should be seeking, along with these other things. But notice what he says. You do all the small things, but you do not have love. And ultimately, that's a selfish reason, trying to avoid being punished. Many of you all may know about the story of John Wesley. I hope you do. As Methodists, he's the founder of our denomination. 
And John Wesley was raised in a parsonage family. He went off to study at Oxford. He founded what was known then as the Holy Club. They would get up early in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, read the Greek New Testament. This group would gather together to study and to pray. They would go and minister to the poor. They would visit the sick and those imprisoned. And then John Wesley felt he hadn't done enough, so he said, I'm going to become a missionary to America. He went to go to convert the Indians and serve a church in Savannah. And when things went awry there, which I won't get into that story, just say he had a failed romance, we'll leave it at that. He came back on a ship to England saying this, I went to save the Indians, but who, O oh Lord, will save me? A few months later, in one of the most famous scenes in all of Christianity, on May 24, 1738, Wesley records, I went quite unwilling, unwillingly to the society meeting on Aldersgate Street, and there hearing Luther's preface to the Romans, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I felt that I did trust Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. It was he who saved me from the law of sin and of death. Looking back on this conversion experience many years later, Wesley said prior to Aldersgate, he had faith of a slave. After Aldersgate, it became the faith of a son. Y'all, why do slaves obey their masters? More often than not, it's avoid getting punished, right? More often than not, it is to avoid some sort of threat that's being hung over them. It's a selfish reason, you see. What we hope happens in obedience to God and, and obedience in a household that a child respects his or her parents enough that he or she will do what he knows the father or mother want them to do. Why? Because the child loves the parent. And a life such as this, Paul says, frees us from the need to try to earn anything from God. We can try to earn the favor of God through all sorts of study, all sorts of church attendance, all sorts of giving, all sorts of spiritual practice. Now, there's nothing wrong with these. These are things that we should be practicing, but these are not the things that cause us to be in relation to God. They are, some, as Wesley would call them, means of grace that keep us connected to God. But we cannot do anything, you see, to earn this favor. Trying to do that will cause us to go crazy because we're constantly scrutinizing our lives, realizing no matter how hard I try, I can never measure up to the grand glory of God. And if I'm trying to do this to avoid the pits of hell, then ultimately all I'm doing is something for my own selfish reasons. But what Paul says, as we respond in the new life of the Spirit, we're free from this slavery of selfishness. And we are given this great promise that he talks about, this new life of the Spirit throughout chapter 8. It's probably the greatest chapter in all the Bible. 
for it starts out this great gift of those who walk in the spirit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, none. No condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. God, you see, sees us in our flawed state and he says to us, as we enter into this relationship, I know who you are and I accept you for who you are. Bishop Will Willimon talks about this a little bit in one of his, his, his writings. Bishop Willimon served in North Alabama, but around here more famously, he's the dean of the Duke University Chapel. Now, you, you Carolina fans, don't give me any hisses right now. UNC State folks, don't, don't give us a boo. He's, he's back at Duke now after being in Alabama for a long time. And he writes that, you know, this receiving of of this grace, this no condemnation from Christ, is it like a long-term relationship? I've heard this week that we've had a a couple that is dear to this church, the Hartleys, married for 54 years, you know, and and the Robertsons just a little while ago celebrated 50 years. I know that's something special. And in a long-term relationship, sometimes uh, we know things about that spouse that no one else knows. And Willimon says this, when a husband goes to the wife and says, you know, sometimes I act a little bit selfish. And she says, a little bit selfish? (laughs) That's all you are. (laughs) And the husband says, what? Is that the way I really am? She said, yeah, but I love you anyway. In the deep recesses of our hearts, we know who we are. We know what we're about, and yet in the midst of all of that, there's no condemnation. Christ sets us free from that, and God says to us, I love you anyway. As I said in a sermon not too long ago, God sees us as we can be, but loves us as we are. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from all of that. And that gives us the liberty to hear this next great news that God offers to us in in Christ Jesus as he proclaims there in chapter 8. We are made children of God. Children of God. Paul writes us this way. Those who uh, walk in the Spirit are made children of God, heirs of God to Christ Jesus. We are set free from being slaves to fear as we sang just so beautifully a moment ago. We are made joint heirs with Jesus Christ, heirs of God. That means that Jesus is your brother. You are a brother of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your brother. You're his sister. You're his brother. And you're all heirs to what God has offered to us through Christ. Heirs to the riches of glory, as Paul puts it. And this means that we act in such a way that is pleasing to him. 
released from all selfish desires because we want to please our Father. Now, does this mean we can act in any way that we want to? You know, Paul puts in, in, in earlier in Romans, no, we do not sin so that grace may abound. Or as I saw on a t-shirt somewhere, I like to sin, God loves to forgive, what's the problem? You know, we don't act that way because we live in such a way to please our Heavenly Father because why we have been given this great claim. We're children of God. And if we're children of God, then guess what? We're set loose to do some amazing things. My Angelou put it this way. When I realized I was a child of God, when I fully understand that, when I received that within myself, I was given the courage to do many good things. When I understood it, when I comprehended it, that I was a child of God, I was given the courage to do many good things. See how this is empowering to us that we are claimed by God as God's children and that should free us to be able to go out and live this world confidently. Not trying to earn anything, but just trying to be the the child, the creation that God has made us to be, no matter what. We moved here from the heat of South Alabama. And in the town that we just moved from, Dothan, is the center of peanut production for America. 75% of the nation's peanuts are grown within a 100-mile radius of Dothan. It's true. There's a national peanut festival there. There's a peanut as tall as a ceiling just about that sits outside uh, the great venue of the peanut festival. Peanuts are important. But it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the work of an African-American man named George Washington Carver. And that's pretty amazing when you think about the way South Alabama was and in some ways still is in their attitudes about things. William Bosch tells a story of when George Washington Carver, after he had done all this great research at Tuskegee Institute, went to Washington, D.C. He was invited there to testify before the House Ways and Means Committee to get some appropriations for his scientific work. And this was in the early 20s. And here's an African-American going to Washington. And back then, the racial prejudice wasn't hidden. It was blatant. And he was called some things uh, that were derogatory. And he wondered, should he, he continue to go on with this presentation? Because they're treating him in such a, a horrible way. But as he writes in his autobiography, he said, as I remembered who I was, that I was a child of God, I said, God, I'm your child. Help me to do your will. And so before these very prejudiced men there on the Capitol, he gave his presentation. They, the, the chair of the committee said, you got 20 minutes. And so he began to speak. And they were so enamored by what he had to say, they gave him another 20 minutes. And then after that 20 minutes, they said, you can talk as long as you want. So for an hour and three quarters, he shared about the great mysteries of the peanut that he had unlocked. And after all that grand presentation, as one, they stood up and gave him applause. 
All because George Washington Carver in the midst of their derogatory remarks and their prejudice remembered, I am a child of God. And all who walk in this new spirit of life, Paul talks about, are children of God. And nothing can take that from us. Now, Paul wants to, t- tells us he wants us to have assurance of that. That's what and he talks about there, that spirit speaking to our spirits, our spirit saying that you are children of God and, and our own sinfulness and our own selfishness sometimes blocks that communication. But that's what he longs for us to have. Why? Because as he says later on in chapter 8, so that we can have this intimate conversation with God where we share the very depths of our soul as a child should with his or her parent. Isn't that beautiful to know that Paul says that as we realize this great gift that we are children of God, that we can share anything with this father that Paul uses this Aramaic word to describe. It's kind of interesting. I mean, even in the English, we, he writes along there in English, which in, in, in the original language was Greek, but then he stops mid-sentence and he uses this word, Abba. Not talking about the Swedish rock group. It is the Aramaic word for daddy. And Paul is saying that through this new life in the spirit, you can have this intimate relationship with God just like a small child can with his daddy. And you can have this wonderful free sense of communication with your heavenly father just like Jesus did. Because remember what he just said, you too are an heir to the glories and riches of heaven just like your brother Jesus. Just like your brother Jesus. And therefore, it unlocks the secrets of your heart to the secrets of the heart of God. And you can have this beautiful conversation where you're free to share everything. Knowing that your heavenly father listens and the richness of his grace and his glory can be poured into your life. Because you have been adopted into his family through what God has done for you by the work of your brother, Jesus. Isn't that incredible news? That's new life in the spirit. You are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Adopted into God's family. We have some dear friends uh, down in Alabama. We got a lot of dear friends down there. We got some dear friends, uh, Lee and Nancy Jackson. And they went many years ago to Russia to adopt a baby. And what a long, arduous process that was. There's mounds of paperwork and they got investigated. They they had to uh, go over there and answer all sorts of questions and fill out background forms. and, And it cost quite a bit of money. And it wasn't something that happened overnight. But finally, they're invited to Russia uh, to overcome this final hurdle. They had to go before this judge, uh, a representative of the Russian government, who worked with, with the agency that they were using to adopt this baby boy. 
And there they stood in the courtroom. And the Russian judge started to, using an interpreter, started to quiz them and question them about all sorts of personal things. And then finally he, he asked, will you care for this baby? Will you provide for this baby? Will you never give up on this baby? And they said, of course, we will care for and provide and never give up on this child. And then the judge took out one of those big old stamp things. You, you know, if you've ever been in any bureaucracy, you, you've seen them. They got that big old stamp formula, boom, 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 started doing all that type of stuff. And after he's done with all of that, a nurse from the back brought out this tiny child. And the judge in broken English said this, what name is given this baby? Harrison Lee Jackson. And the judge said, your name is Harrison Lee Jackson. Your mother is Nancy Jackson. Your father is Lee Jackson. It is done. And then he took out the gavel and boom. And for the first time, they got to hold their new baby, Harrison Lee Jackson. It's been a number of years since Harrison came to the United States. He, he just started college. He has no hint of a Russian accent. In fact, he talks like he's from Alabama. <laughs> He's a good boy, raised in a loving home where he was cared for, provided for, and they never gave up on him. Well, through what happened many years ago, when your brother Jesus was there on a cross and the hammer came down, and drove spikes into your brother Jesus' hands and into his feet. When those spikes went in and the hammer made that resounding clash, the boom, you were adopted as a child of God. You were adopted as a child of God. Such news like that never grows old. As the Spirit whispers into your heart how much you're loved, how much you are cared for. That's always fresh. That's always new. So, repeat this with me. I am a child of God. Can you say that even through your mask? I am a child of God of God, go live like one in the freedom of his love for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.